Hanukkah. Hanukkah. Hanukkah with candles. All right, gotta get up. Oh, okay. So, uh, happy Hanukkah, everybody online and in the outside world, wherever you are. Uh, Hanukkah is festival of lights, which is why you always see these candles all over the place, like those. Like my lovely daughter got me that uh, <clears throat> menorah some years ago, and she even scored the uh, beautiful blue candles to go with it last year. Um, does anybody notice anything weird about that Hanukkah? I mean, that menorah. Yes, because they have the shamas over there. I've seen those. Yeah, you can put it anywhere. Come on. Jews, you know, they're liberal. Um, what I was going for was there's nine candles on that. The menorah only has seven. So the Hanukkah, see, you should ask. The Hanukkah, Hanukkah menorah is different than the regular menorah. And it's because it has nine candles. And obviously the one, the raised one is the shamik, the shmash, yeah, whatever, the shamash. That's how you're supposed to do it is you light the shmash, the tall one. And then with that, you light the other candles. And of course, nowadays, um, Everything is just completely messed up. So these are reformed candles. And the reformed Judaism says the candle only has to burn for half an hour. <laughs> Dude, you know, it's like, who comes up? Doesn't, yeah, yeah, no, it really doesn't. But it's just like, who comes up with this stuff? And then who goes through the technology of actually building a candle that only burns for half an hour and leaves no residue, which is kind of cool. So only the Jews are smart enough to do that. So, uh, you know, you light one candle every night. The, sh the shamash is always lit. And then you add a candle every night. So today is the second day of Hanukkah. So we have two candles. And every time you light the candles, there's a prayer that goes along with it. And I was practicing my Hebrew. And I got the first couple lines down pretty well, but it starts using some really weird words after that. So we've decided, and, and Jews, typically, if you've ever been to a Passover or a, you know, a Hanukkah or whatever, they sing the verses. You know, they don't just speak them. And there's no way I'm going to sing them, even if I could say them. So it just seemed better to me to have this guy do it. Well, what do they say? Well, you got it. Okay. Okay, this one is the one you'd normally do on the first night. Well, this one's for the first night.
Okay, there you go. So those are the prayers, the blessings that go along with lighting the candles on your Hanukkah menorah. Uh, that last, I did, because I was I, I was going through. You know, a lot of this is is fairly straightforward until you get to stuff like. Let me just spell this. Well, you saw it. S h e h e c h e y a n u. Okay, I'm not that good with those. I've got I've got a lot of the rest of them, but anyway, okay. <clears throat> yeah, nice. But a lot of those words that you, you know you would know, uh, you know, Barak, of course, Barak, uh, blessing Elo, yeah, Elohim and and Melik and you know a lot of those things you would know. Okay, so there are our candles, and according to modern Reformed Judaism, they only need to burn for a half an hour. But everywhere I go, you see Hanukkah, I mean menorahs, Hanukkah menorahs. And, you know, they have electric lights and they have painted on candles and they have, it's like, eh, anyway. Okay, so Hanukkah, the word Hanukkah actually means inauguration. Or if you split the word and squint, you can make two Hebrew words out of it that say they rested. And both seem fairly appropriate. Hanukkah is called the Festival of Lights or the Feast of Dedication. And actually it would, should be the Feast of Rededication. It's an eight-day festival characterized by lighting the menorah. Um, and Hanukkah is, it's, it's the only festival or feast or anything in, in uh, Judaism that is an eight-day event, which is weird. And you don't do anything special in, in the sense that you work and you do your normal lives and you celebrate Hanukkah at night with your Hanukkah candles that should be in the window, but uh, it's not going to happen here. So there's the Samash, which is the, the taller one that you use to light the other ones all year. There's nine, 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 nine candles. Um, and the Hebrew word for nine is Tisha, which means to decrease or turn away. And that seems weird, but it's in, in favor of the next. It's not to decrease or turn away to walk. It's like John had to decrease so that Yeshua could increase. It's that sort of idea. It's from the word Sha'ah, which is to consider, inspect, or to be amazed. Um, the, uh, uh, the ninth letter of the Hebrew alphabet is the tet, which is, uh, the tav is what we would call the t, the tet. We don't really have one of those in English, but the ninth letter, um, it's the ninth letter. So the picture of it is the basket, which is, you know, it holds stuff. And it's interesting, Galatians uh, 5, and you can count these as we go, 22 and 23. But the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, and temperance, nine. Against such there is no law. And 1 Corinthians 12, 7 and 8. But the manifestation of the Spirit is given unto every man to profit withal. For one is given the Spirit, or one is given by the Spirit, the word of wisdom, to another the word of knowledge by the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healing by the same Spirit, 
to another, the working of miracles, to another prophecy, to another discerning of spirits, to another different kinds of tongues, and to another interpretation of tongues. But these all work, worketh that one and the selfsame spirit dividing every man severally as he will. So those are nine, you know, it's just, it, it's no coincidence, but that's always how Hebrew works. It seems you might conclude that um, nine is, you know, fruitfulness or God's gift or whatever. Hanukkah is always celebrated on the 25th of the month of Kislev, which could be anywhere from late November to mid-December for us. It always falls between uh, what we would call Thanksgiving and Christmas, and it's an eight-day holiday. So the Hebrews, or the snarky ones anyway, like to say it's 25-8 you know, because we're all on 24-7, you know, we're on it all the time, 24-7. Well, they're 25-8, which is, you know, fun. Um, and of course, the reason for the lights, you probably all know the reason for the lights. Um, Judas Maccabeus and his, his group of um, Bravo team priests usurped, knocked out, got rid of the entire Greek army because they had finally pushed him too far. In uh, 186 BC, the Greeks passed a law that the Jewish could, the, the Jews could no longer worship. They couldn't read God's word and the practices of worship required um, by the God of Israel could not be uh, partaken of. So they erected a statue of Zeus in the Holy of Holies. Pigs were sacrificed on the altar. Torah scrolls were burned and the temple was utterly desecrated. And at that, this priest and his sons and some hanger-oners said enough is enough. And it's interesting to look at that, um, how that happened, because we're in 168 BC. It was 70 AD when the temple, you know, finally fell. But the Greeks had been running the place for quite a while. This wasn't, they didn't roll into town and all of a sudden just do this. They had been running uh, Israel. They had been the masters over most of the Middle East for decades. And, and I look at, how, you know, how things have gone in this country and in not much different time than, you know, a time span than this. Um, the Greeks roll into town and the Hebrews are worshiping in the temple the way they're supposed to worship for the most part. And the Greeks become the new, new boss, right? And the, the way the Greeks rolled was they have hundreds of gods. You know, they, one, one extra god is no big deal. So they worship all these different people and animals and things and, you know, the god of popcorn and the god of Oreos and whatever, They've got their own gods. So when they would roll into town and take over a country, they would just absorb the traditions of that country into them. And that was actually a brilliant strategy because it didn't uh, alienate them from the people they were taking over. So it helped them to avoid costly wars and battles and all this stuff. And then slowly, and in the case of the Jews, about every year, the Greeks would come to the uh, high priest for the year and they'd say, hey, look, to help keep the peace here, let's just have you stop doing some minor thing, you know? 
And the high priests would agree because it seemed worth it to help keep the peace. And then the Greeks were living there with the Jews and they were bringing their lifestyle, which is vastly different than a believer's lifestyle would be. They were, uh, you know, they called them Hellenists and, uh, you know, it was sex, drugs, and rock and roll. They were just party animals and whatever felt good, you know, they did. And sex was a social event that you had often and everywhere and food comas, which I guess I shouldn't talk so much about, were common because you guys are often very good at bringing excellent food. Um, they ate, they drank, they just, they, it, that's the Greek lifestyle. It was hedonistic, right? And um, so when you move into a country, especially a country like Israel, it's, it's a different show. And originally the Jews would say, okay, fine. You, you know, you do what you need to do. We'll do what we need to do. And everybody will just get along dandy. And in some sense, it was a good thing because they were now being protected by the full might of the Greek army. And that was, uh, that was as big as it got. There was nobody could take on the Greeks. So if they could just figure out how to live peaceably with these people, it was actually a pretty good thing for them. But you know what would happen. And of course, you start living with these people who uh, don't believe the same things you do, that worship all sorts of different gods, that their moral code is vastly different than yours. And you just start to embrace some of the things that they do. And over the period of decades and decades and decades, the people living, you know, especially in Jerusalem, um, became less and less like people of God and more and more like people of the world. And as I consider this country, it's, and I assume probably most countries, it's the same story. In the beginning, uh, we were fairly pious and sought after the things of the Lord. And, you know, every major university that you can think of, Harvard and Columbia and everybody else was all founded as a Christian college. And that was the textbook that everyone learned to read on was the Bible. And, you know, our, our, our morals were towards the things of God, not that maybe they, they were perfect or, but they, that was the goal, right? That was just impregnated in your life. And then as the years go by, and the world starts to interfere and you see those people can do these things and get away with it. And maybe that's not so bad. And you know, that over there, that seems like a reasonable idea. And, and pretty soon you're in a place like we are now where there's no sign of a godly Christian anywhere. They, they hide themselves. They don't, you know, the world is just, you know, murdering babies and using drugs and having sex with kids. And I mean, it's just normal. Our leaders do it. So why shouldn't we do it? And we've lost all that that we had. And that's how it was in Israel. And then when uh, Antiochus came in and, and finally just desecrated the temple, that was enough. And of course you ask, well, why wasn't it enough 50 years before that? And I would ask the same question in this country. 
why why wasn't it enough in the 50s or the 60s when they started doing all the things that you know and it's just it's the frog in the boiling water thing or the blender or whatever that saying is bad as desecrating the temple to finally push these guys over the over the brink so the story uh goes that these i mean he's a priest for crying out loud it's not as though he's a trained warrior and it's his priest and his sons and some other people who served in the temple and they uh decided we can't do this and if you know if, if we're going to die fighting this we're going to die it doesn't matter i'd rather be dead than have to live like that and i suspect most people in this room are thinking the same exact things right now as we look at the things going on but the story is uh, that they took on the entire greek army now granted there wasn't a big contingent of greeks there because the jews are typically fairly docile and easy to control so they didn't need to keep them at at spear point or at arrow point they were cooperative for the most part and to this day they're still they tend to be that way it's hard to find a you know a jew that will stand up and do battle like that uh so they didn't have a big contingent but it was still vastly larger than maccabeans uh you know judas and his boys but anyway, they took the army on and they beat them with the help of God. They actually threw the Greeks out of Jerusalem, which was a, you know, an unbelievable thing. So, of course, the first order of business was to, um, was to clean up the temple and rededicate it, right? To get it back to the place where it could function in the, in the way it should function. So they had to get rid of the Zeus and actually physically clean everything to get the blood of the pigs out and clean it all up and find things and restore all the stuff. Uh, and in the process of doing that, they found one small vial of consecrated oil, enough to make the temple menorah burn for a day. So there was much dispute, and you can read this in some of the extra biblical books, uh, between the various Maccabeans uh, what should they do? Should they, because it takes about eight days to consecrate the olive oil. You just can't go down to the, you know, to the local church and buy consecrated oil like you probably can today. It had to be manufactured in a certain way. And, you know, there was a process. So it would take about eight days to get it. So the discussion was, well, should we put the oil we have in and light the menorah only to have it go out in a day? until we can get more or should we just wait so that we don't have to light it and it goes out again and what they decided to do you know and, and i just i whipped through that but think about what they must have been discussing because this is god's temple and this is his light and his menorah and it's not just a i'm going to put this oil in and it's going to go out in a day there's a spiritual component to this and they were discussing this uh, seriously what should we do and the decision was, well, we're going to put the oil in and at least light the, the menorah for a day. And, you know, hopefully God will see that. And, well, God did see that. And it burned for eight days until they were able to get the consecrated oil made. And that's, that's what we celebrate at Hanukkah. And that's why you've got eight candles is because of the eight days. So as with everything, or I believe everything in scripture, it's... Uh, 
it's have you seen those little round pads that they have all these little wires coming out and you can like charge eight or 10 or 12 different devices all at one time. You know, they're all sort of interconnected. Well, that's how, as you know, that's how the scriptures are. And you can't just pull one thing out and look at it without everything coming with it. And Hanukkah is that way as well. You know, you can't just discuss the events of Hanukkah and, and go on to the next chapter because it's connected to everything. Um, so we can't possibly go through all of the stuff. But the the first lesson that I see in Hanukkah is compromise. You can't you can't compromise. And that is you you read that throughout scripture. You know, all this stuff to them to get to the point where the 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 Greek emperor just desecrated the temple, it wasn't because he was having a bad day. It was years and years, decades and decades of just creeping towards it to the point where he thought, you know what, there's not enough people that actually care. I'm just going to do it because they had compromised. And you can, you can say, oh, it's for the greater good. It's for national security. It's, you know, you can come up with any reason you want to come up with. But it's compromise and you can't do it. So when, when we saw um, the, the first part of the story is seeing the people of God just accepting it. We have to do this because. We have to put masks on because. We have to close our businesses down because. We have to cheat at the elections because. Whatever it is. You know, I watched Raphael Warnock, apparently a pastor of a mega church. Tens of thousands of people go to this guy's church every Sunday. He's a pastor. Raphael Warnock, the guy running for state senate in Georgia against the Republican, the blonde lady who may not be any better. But some, some, you know, Georgia and Alabama and Mississippi, those are still, I mean, there's Christians in those states. Or the people who go to church, right? And so some reporter asked him, how can you, how can you be a pastor and support abortion? How can you be a pastor and say we have to defund the military? How can you not ask him all these questions? Well, he answered them. And he gave them scripture. And they were so twisted and so disgusting, but he had an answer. And he used the Bible to justify all of those things that are absolutely against what God says. It was blasphemy. It was. But he believed it. So presumably the 20, 30, 40, I don't know how many thousands of people go to his church, believe it too. Because whatever the pastor says, the people believe. And if they don't believe it, they'll leave. And if he's still got 40,000 people at his church, they must believe it. I mean, how can that happen? So you have Jerusalem full of Jews worshiping the God of Abraham, Yitzhak, and Yaakov. And they're, they're doing this. They're getting involved with, you know, the, the gluttony and the sex in the streets and the naked Christmas caroling and all that goes on with being Greek because that's what they do. Oh, because 
you know, that's the way to keep peace. That's the way to keep, that's the only way we can keep our temple open. I mean, whatever they thought, it's crazy. So eventually, eventually enough was enough. And some guys took it upon themselves. You know, they certainly prayed about it. But there, I mean, how much is there to pray about? These people were desecrating the temple. It had to be stopped. And if you recall our Torah portion on Pincus, remember Pincus runs this guy and this girl through with his spear at the door of the temple because what they were doing was filthy. And he wasn't charged with murder. He wasn't jailed. He was approved of by God for putting a stop to it. And God says he actually saved tens of thousands of lives because had nobody stopped that, God would have killed them all. So sometimes action is required. So I guess compromise is, you know, is, is the first thing you would want to learn. And that's probably not the most popular message when you talk about Hanukkah. Um, but that's it. They were thinking, most, most Jews were thinking, well, this is what we have to do to survive. And Judas Maccabeus and his guys said, no, that's exactly the opposite. If we want to survive, we have to put a stop to that. And, um, you know, where, where are we today? The second thing that I would want to talk about is Ionia, which all you educated people probably know is the Greek word for Greece, right? Ionia is the, if you're as old as me, you've seen that. It's spelled yud pei tav, yud pei tav, yapith. The same word in Hebrew is for beauty is also spelled yud pei tav. So this word, this name yapith is, uh, is certainly tied to beauty. Greeks believe that truth is beauty and beauty is truth, that uh, age is bad, youth is good. Uh, that's why the gymnasium was a huge thing in, in Greek life, because you have to keep yourself looking young. And the Jews believe the exact opposite. They believe in wisdom and age and humility and, uh, you know, providing for the infirm and the sick and the, the widows, which is the exact opposite of the Greek lifestyle. It's like just party down and everybody looks good. So this idea that Yapeth, Japheth, the son of Noah, his name is Beauty, is, is interesting. And he became, um, if you recall, well, let's just see here. Um, First Chronicles 1.5. Oh, no, that's not it. But we'll get to it. First Chronicles 1.5 says, The sons of Yapeth are Gomer, Magog, Madai, Yavan, Tubal, Meshach and Tyrus. Do any of those names ring a bell? This is not a good group of guys. These are the guys in Genesis 10 that come against uh, Israel at the end times. Well, those are Japheth's progeny. Japheth means beauty. He becomes Ionia. That's the Greek term for his name. He becomes Greece. He becomes those people. So let's just go to Genesis chapter 9 for a moment, uh, starting in verse 24. 
and you, you, you know the story up to this point. And Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his younger son, that would be uh, Ham, had done unto him. And he said, cursed be Canaan, which is a whole nother study that we actually are going to be getting into it after the first year, because Canaan was the son of Ham. Ham was the guy who committed the act. Why was Canaan the one punished? Okay. And he said, cursed be Canaan, a servant of the servants, he shall be unto his brethren. And he, shall, and he said, blessed be the Lord God of Shem, and Canaan shall be his servant. And God shall enlarge Japheth, Yapheth, and he shall dwell in the tents of Shem, and Canaan will be his serpent. So you see this guy, Japheth, we call him. Um, and if you go to the Strongs, it says Japheth means enlarged. Well, it doesn't mean enlarged. It means beauty. But his father said, your territory will be enlarged. You will be the guy. You'll be the conqueror. You'll be the guy that the world looks up to. But, he says, make sure you live in the tents of Shem. Because Shem was the one who was godly, who, and, and, uh, and not necessarily in a, in a good way. We get both Muslims and Jews and, you know, both Muslims, Jews, and Christians, both um, from Shem, right? He's the religious guy. And so Noah said to, to his son, Yepheth, you are going to be the conqueror. You're going to be the guy that sails the seas and invents the stuff. And you're going to be the guy. But don't lose sight of the fact you need to live in the tents of Shem. You need to live in the tents of God. You need to put God first. While you're getting all these things, while you're the guy, make sure you put God first. And of course, uh, we know how that went. You know, and we know why. Because beauty is distracting. And all the things the world has are very alluring. And it certainly was to the Jews of 165 BC and before. And it is to us now. We get so wrapped up in you know, I mean, it's everywhere. TV and magazines and movies and you can't go anywhere. You can't even see a commercial without getting some suggestive deal. Kids go to school and learn stuff you don't even want to know about. And it shouldn't be that way. Where, where, where are we? Why aren't we there putting our foot and when they said we're taking the prayers out of school, we're taking the 10 commandments out of schools. We're going to let uh, babies be aborted. We're going to do, where were we? Where was the church? You know, silent like the church always is just like these Jews were in 165 until somebody finally said enough. And I don't know. I suspect that will never happen because I believe we're at the end of the, the end of the age, the end of the world. We're in the last days. Because nobody steps up and says enough. Um, anyway, so Yepeth, son of Noah, blessed by Noah, did not follow in the ways of Noah. You know, Noah is perfect in all his generations and his sons. And again, we're going to get into a lot of this stuff after the first year. But who did his sons marry? Right? We know their names. Had they been dating for a long time? Did they know their family histories? You know, that's not the way, uh, especially some of the uh, Enoch and some of these other books say. It's as though the rain's coming. We got to put girls on this boat. So he picks three girls and brings them. Well, they weren't 
of the same genealogy or didn't have the same background as Noah and his sons, and you wound up with a gene pool that was no longer perfect, right? So, you know, we'll, we'll get into that later. But anyway, Greece, Japheth, son of Noah, did not, he was happy to take the blessings. He did not, uh, he did not follow in the ways. Lesson two, I guess, would be, we just sort of talked about it, standing up for God. You know, we see, and there's no question this actually happened. This is a historical document. You can read it in Josephus and any number of uh, world histories. This actually happened. This guy named Judas Maccabeus and his sons and presumably uh, some other people, unless he had a lot of sons, actually did this. They revolted against Greece, the world power. It would be like uh, Jamaica coming over here and destroying the United States military. It's, it, it doesn't even make sense. You know, the only way that you could put that in any sort of reasonable context would be God did that because that's what God does. And you see it all through the Tanakh as he says, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go before you and take those people. And he does. And then the people will get cocky and say, oh, yeah, we're going to kill those people too. And he says, don't do it. And they do, and they get slaughtered. You know, if God is with you, nobody can stop you. If God is not with you, you're going down in a, a terrible way. Well, he was obviously with the Maccabean brothers. And he, um, you know, God always has a remnant. Yahweh is, always has a remnant. And he told most of his prophets that, and because his, his, most of his prophets came to him and said, am I the only one? You've told me to say these things and nobody's listening. They're threatening to kill me. Am I the only one left? And to every one of these guys, he said, don't worry. I have a remnant of people. They'll be here. Don't, don't panic. And they were always there. And the prophets acted like we do, like, are we the only ones who believe this? And, uh, but it, 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 when we get that feeling like we're the only ones, then we start to compromise because it's like, I can't stop all this by myself. And we see all the things that are going on in this world, all the things that are going on in this country and have been going on for 50, 60, 70 years. And we say that, what can I do? I can't stop this. Well, that's true. You can't but you and God can. And if God wants you to stand up and do his, do his deal, whatever the Lord wants, if that's what he puts on your heart, you need to do it. On, on Judas Maccabeus' heart, he put on how to, and what, what you know, I, I can't even imagine what he told him. It's like he comes to him and says, oh, guess what? I'm going to have you rout the Greek army. Uh-huh. Right. I'm a priest. I don't even have a sword. But God did it, right? That's the only possible explanation for that. So I guess lesson two would be standing for God or standing, even standing with God, just listening to God. If that's what God wants, do it. Because there's no harm is going to come to you if you do what God asks you to do. But I would predict harm may come to you 
or not necessarily to you, to any of us, is look at it and think there's no possible way. This is just stupid. And that's when we run into trouble, when we don't believe him and we don't do those things. Can you imagine what, what he must have felt? What he might, you know, and I get it. He, he said, I don't care. If I die, I die. I'd rather die than have to see this and have to see the temple desecrated like that and the people just treated like, you know. So the Lord was with him. Um, so after three, three years to the day after he routed the Greek army, the temple is now restored. And this, that's when this takes place. And at the end of the day, that day, the day they were going to dedicate, rededicate the temple, uh, they found this one small vial of oil, which would have been enough to burn for one day. And, and God is with him, right? To prove that, he put whatever the measure is, you know, one-eighth of enough oil in the oil lamp. And he said, I was with you. I'll show you. I'll prove it to you. If this wasn't enough, if me helping you, if me causing the Greek army to fall wasn't proof enough, watch this. I'll make that burn for eight days. And he did. You know, I guess lesson two is Chavez is, is worth living for. We tend to think, we tend to think with our eyes. What can I do? I see what's coming. This is bad. Not really. I mean, it is, but it's not. It would be worse to not do what God asks you to do than it would be, as he said, than it would be to die doing what God asks you to do. And the reality is if God asks you to do it, you're not going to die anyway. Okay, so there are people who, um, because Hanukkah is not one of the feasts in Leviticus, you know, the seven feasts and all of the different holy days and the holy convocations. And it, there's a huge list. I think we added them up one day. It was like 192 days a year. There's some feast, festival, convocation, holy day or something going on. So that the people who are following um, the Lord God of Israel have 192 out of 365 days that are focused specifically on him. You know, we don't, we have... 50 maybe, you know, if we go to church most of the time. And it's not really that focused on him anyway. But think about your life if you were spent, if every third day or so, you were focused on the things of the Lord. If he, if he showed you things and had miracles and, you know, if that was your life, it would be fabulous. But Hanukkah is not listed among those things. It's, yeah, well, it's not even listed though. So it's, so there are people who think, well, that's not a feast then because it's not, well, yeah, limp, 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 if, if, and like so many Jews too, like so many Jews think Hanukkah's not, you know, it's not in the, it's not in the Tanakh. Why should we, it's just some man-made thing. Okay, John ten twenty two. Yeshua was at the Feast of Dedication. 
and it was winter. Well, the Feast of Dedication is in the spring. So where was he? He was here. He was at the, he was he was at he was at Hanukkah. He was celebrating Hanukkah because that's the feast of dedication that happened in the winter. You know, Kislev is December. It's in the winter. He was at the feast of dedication. And how many times have you read that? I know I've read this a thousand times, you know, before I was introduced to all this stuff. Yeshua was at the Feast of Dedication, it was winter. I never gave it a second thought. Why would they even put that in? Who cares? It's the Feast of Dedication. It's a day on the calendar. It doesn't matter if it's winter. It doesn't add no, it doesn't add anything apparently, but it adds a huge thing. He was at Hanukkah. He was at Solomon's portico doing that, lighting the menorah. Um, so if we, if we read down a little bit, let's see. John... 10, starting in verse 24, it said, and then came the Jews. Okay, so let's just stop there. Who are the Jews? I know you can answer that a thousand ways. Jews are from Judah. The tribe of Judah is is where they get the name Jews. Judah and Benjamin formed the southern kingdom. The other 10 tribes formed the northern kingdom, which is called Israel, right? Okay. Then came the Jews, Judah, which again, okay, is the Pharisees and the Sadducees were what? Jews. They were from the tribe of Judah and Benjamin. Okay, we'll get to that after the first of the year. Um, Then came the Jews round about him, and they said unto him, How long dost thou make us to doubt? If you be the Christ, tell us plainly. Yeshua answered them, I told you, and you believed not. The works that I do in my Father's name, they bear witness of me. But ye believe me not, because you are not of my sheep, as I said unto you. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give them unto eternal life. And they shall never perish, neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. My Father, which gave them me, is greater than all. And no man is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. I and my Father are one. This is what's going on in the Temple of Solomon at Hanukkah. John was on the island of Patmos, right? And you remember the whole story, how he got there in the first place. They couldn't kill the guy, right? Which is exactly what I was saying. John had a job. The Lord gave him a job. It doesn't matter that they want to boil him in oil. They want to stretch him apart in pieces. They want to do whatever they want to do. They can't kill him because he hasn't finished what God gave him to do. So they finally just said, Let's just put him on this godforsaken rocky island and let him live out his life and die there. So he's on this island by himself, probably, and Yeshua shows up and starts talking to him, which is, you know, we're familiar with the, the book of the revelation of the apocalypse of Yeshua, right? Revelation, where, where Yeshua gave to John the words that we read in the book of Revelation about what the end is going to look like. But what we're less familiar with is he gave John all kinds of stuff, which I, I believe you see in the book of John, in 1 John and 2 John and 3 John, because they're unlike any other book in Scripture. The, why is John's gospel 
so different than the other three gospels because he knew stuff they didn't know. God told him stuff he hadn't, that the other disciples didn't get because he was on Patmos talking with Yeshua, right? So I believe the gospel of John and first, second, third John were written long after the gospels, the other three, because John was on Patmos, you know, depending on who you talk to from 60 to 90 AD or somewhere after, after even a lot of the uh, disciples, the original disciples had passed or been killed. So I believe uh, that's why it's so different. Um, But John is, is tying, I believe, Hanukkah, sort of with this backhand remark in verse 22, to the true sheep of Yahweh, right? He's, he's making this case that, um, see, and the candles are almost out. It's okay. We're not going to, no, we don't want that to happen. <laughs> but it's Hanukkah candles. You wouldn't let that happen. Um, <clears throat> okay, so um, that's, I was talking about why some of, you know, they say Hanukkah is not in the Bible. Well, I suggest that it is. And we saw Yeshua was celebrating it. We saw John was talking about it. Um, and there's a whole bunch of stuff. Okay, so Hanukkah is 25-8, right? It's on the 25th and it's an eight-day event. Eight is the number of new beginnings, which is interesting, right? Um, and this certainly celebrates an event that was a new beginning. They cast the Greeks out and they rededicated, restored and rededicated the temple and and started, presumably started worshiping as they did previously. Now, of course, you know, that's not going to happen because most of the people in Jerusalem were now Hellenized and they, you know, they're probably missing all the parties and the food and the sex and everything else. You know, we would be missing our Netflix and YouTube and whatever it is that we're, if we were suddenly thrown into a place where, you know, we could worship God directly, would we even do it? Could we give up our stuff? I don't know. Okay, so 825, eight's the number of new beginnings. Um, A boy is circumcised, a baby boy is circumcised on the eighth day, right? Because that's the day that, and well, this isn't why. (laughs) It's not because this is true, but this is true. The eighth day, a baby boy has the highest, what, vitamin K or blood clotting, uh, whatever it is. That's the optimum day that you want to hack a body part off because he's less likely to encounter difficulties. Yeah, or get sick even. Um, It's just good they do it that early because that's, oh my God, okay. Can you imagine Ishmael? He's 13. It's like, you're going to do what? Okay, don't know. We'll get to that later. Um, okay, new boys, ba- a baby boy circumcised at eight days and has given his name. And name in Hebrew is Shem, right? Shem, Shem, name, means authority. Doesn't just mean name. And that's why every, to this day, everybody in the Middle East is, you know, Saddam Hussein Al-Takridi because it's, there's, there's something to the name. It's authority. He's this guy from Tikrit or he's uh Simon Bar Jonah, Simon son of Jonah. You know, there's there's a history in your name. Yeah, yeah, qualification and authority. It's uh, so okay. So the, the the 
you're given your name if you're a boy eight days with the circumcision that's your authority that's your shim that's your name oil is what was burned in the lampstands that's the when except that's a whole nother study lamps and candles two different things you know lamp burns oil holy spirit all you have to do is refresh the holy spirit the thing will burn forever candles burn out um, okay we'll get to that study later so uh, oil is in is is in the lamp of the menorah and it produces light which is or in hebrew 25th word of the tanakh um, Okay, oil is the word for Hebrew. Uh, shim is name. Oil is shim min. And noon to the end of it. Shim in. So shim, authority. Uh, oil, shim in. The festival lasts eight days. Shimona. It's you're just adding a hey to the noon to the shim. When the children left Egypt on their way to the promised land, the 25th campsite is called Hashemona. So now you're just putting a hay in front of it. Uh, so 25 and eight are tied together through all this stuff. The leaders, the Maccabeans, their actual name is Hashemona, which is 25th, but plural. So there's this whole linguistic trail that goes from, uh, you know, oil to, I mean, authority to oil to eight to, I mean, it's the same. It's the same word, which is kind of interesting. Yes, yeah, seven. Three on each side and one in the center. Yeah. And I don't know how, when that started. When, when this started? Yeah. At Hanukkah, apparently, because it was eight days. Right. So it was after the initial, um, the initial ceremony or whatever. But so then they started making Hanukkahs. Right. Pre presumably in in remembrance of the hanukkah event of the of the lord providing the oil that burned for eight days and that's why you've got eight candles that burn which is why it's a little bit bogus to use a candle that burns out because that's sort of that's not the holiday that's not what you're trying to remember you're, it would be more amazing if these were oil lamps and you could put just a drop of oil in it and it would burn for eight days but you know, this is a reminder. It's not the real deal, but they, you know, they couldn't use it. Oh, they could have, but they didn't want to use the seven, the regular menorah, the right. temple menorah, because it's the temple menorah, right. but they needed to remember the event. And at 165 BC, they were limited in their options. <laughs> so a menorah seemed to be an easy way to do it. And then, you know, this linguistic trail of authority the authority to do this the oil the eight the 25th the you know the hashimona the name of the guys that it's i mean it could be just a coincidence but if you've been here any length of time you know that you know there's there literally is no word for coincidence in hebrew i mean there is in modern hebrew but not in 
There just isn't a word for it because it was unnecessary. It doesn't exist. There's no such thing as a coincidence. So I have a word for it. So it couldn't really be a coincidence, I believe, because when, when uh, Yeshua was having Moses write all this stuff in Leviticus, writes down all these uh, feasts and holy days and holy convocations and all this stuff, this wasn't going to happen for 2,200 years. You couldn't write that out and go, oh, yeah, I want you to celebrate Hanukkah. What? Yeah. Why? What, is, what are you talking about? There's no such thing. It hadn't happened. It wouldn't happen for 2,200 years. So the Lord being the Lord, he's going to put clues in here that you can look to later. And I didn't explain this very well, but um, there's a huge linguistic trail. You see Yeshua in the temple celebrating it. Why would that be? You know, why would any of this be? He wants you to remember those things. Remember what? Well, don't compromise. Stand up for God. You know, all of these things, um, rededicate your life. That's what this is about, is rededicating a defiled temple. Well, does he care about a building? Not so much. You're the temple. So this holiday, today, this week, is the time to remind us that our temple needs to be rededicated. It needs to be undefiled because it's defiled now. You know, how are you going to do that? And do, do you have the strength to do that? Do you have the willingness to do that? This guy that God put in charge, the priest of the day, Judas Maccabeus, the Hasmonean, he had the willingness to do it. God put it in his heart. I can't do this anymore. I'm not going to do this anymore. And if I die trying to fix it, I die. Big deal. It's better than living like that. And I wonder as I look around, you know, not necessarily this room, but as I look around th this country and I look around the world and I look, you know, it doesn't really matter what happens in this country or anywhere in the world. God's time clock is Israel. But you look at the country of Israel and it's the same. It's the same as you see here. It's the same as you saw there. Is someone going to stand up? Well, yeah, somebody is eventually. So, but the Bible, you know, that's one of those things. The Bible is, we can look at the Bible as, oh, this book that tells everyone how to live. Okay, sure, fine, great. That's true. I'm not going to argue that point. But the Bible isn't for them. It's for me. Everything in Scripture, everything that the Lord says is for me. I can't tell you what he told me and make you do that. I have to do it. And you have to do what he tells you to do. And as you read Scripture, it's, it's personal. It's a story about the whole world for all times. But it's personal. And if he's saying to me, I need to rededicate my life, my walk, my temple, then maybe that's something I should consider. And he gives you an example. He says, hey, the Greeks were here and they did this and that and the other thing and uh, just tap her, she'll move. There you go. And that's the way the world is now. That's the way the world has always been. From the, from the, from the garden, there have been people intent on separating us from our God. So it's not as though it's a new thing. It's not as though we're the only ones that are suffering through all this stuff. This has always been the way it's been. And are we willing to do what they did? Well, I'm wondering now, 
Well, yeah, and now Morocco joined the boat. Yes. So that's four. It's not just something that, there's nothing that just happens. There's no just coincidence, but there are things, you know, and again, that's a beautiful menorah. Thank you so much. It's gorgeous. The candles are delightful. They burn out, I guess, in an hour. So maybe I'm not fully a reformed Jew. I don't know. There goes one right now. Poof. Um, it's just a symbol. It's just a reminder. It's a reminder to you and to your heart. Look, that's what happened in those days. That's what the Lord said. And you can see that picture. You know, we saw it with Pincus and the, the javelin. You see, you see it all through scripture. There's this time of, uh, of uh, you see it from the garden. I mean, it's all through scripture. And again, that's what we're going to be talking about next month. Um, you, you know, coming out of Babylon, right? We're in Babylon. <laughs> We need to come out of it. We need to do what he did. We need to do what Pincus did. We need to do, uh, you know, it's, it's personal. It's for us. It's not just they need to do that. And if they get better, I'll go with them. It's we need, we need to do it for us. We need to stand for the Lord. And I don't know what that means. Right. Well, you know, and that's, I can't answer that because it's not, <laughs> I can answer it for me. I can't answer it for you because it's different for every person. And that's, that's why God made us the way he made us. That's why he talks so often about a body, right? It's, I'm not, and we've had this discussion before. My wife yells at me every time I bring it up, but there, there are certain, um, there are certain parts of your body that, you know, are, are not discussed in um, private or in, you know, in mixed company with children in the room. They're little, uh, I know, I know, I know. I'm, I'm just trying to think of the, what is, what is it? It's like a bacteria or, I don't know. They're, our bodies are covered with bacteria, right? And that's what keeps us healthy. And all these people get their antibacterial soap and they bathe in it and they wash their hands and they kill all the bacteria. Well, 90% of them are good for you. They're necessary for life. So there are bacteria in certain parts of your body that are very necessary. Well, that guy is just as important as, you know, the brain cells or the whatever. I mean, without, if this bacteria didn't exist, you would die a horrible, painful, ugly, disgusting death because this bacteria does stuff that keeps you safe and sound and, you know, keeps you from being eaten from the inside out. Well, nobody wants to be that bacteria, but somebody has to be, right? Everybody wants to be, you know, the head, right? Well, if everybody was the head, could you, that's like the twilight zone. This little, you know, 12-headed monster rolling down the streets that doesn't have these bacteria, so he's going to rot from the inside out. You know, it's, we're all different, and we're different on purpose, and we do different things. And you had this whole city of Jerusalem that had three or four million Jews in it. And you can't tell me that all of them but these seven had totally sold out to the Greeks. Of course not. There were people there that this, this disturbed that weren't buying into all this stuff. And you look at our country, you look at Israel, you look at the world and you think, it's easy to think, but oh my gosh, the whole world's gone crazy. There's nobody here that has any common sense anymore. 
well, that's not true. <laughs> you know, a lot of people do, but I think a lot of us don't know what to do, right? Well, the only thing you can do, I mean, I'm not inciting you to take up arms and it, and it may come to that, but the only thing any of us can do is to seek God and see what he has for us. And the first thing that has to happen is we need to rededicate our temple. So before the last little candle dies, we should use this every week. That's an hour, isn't it? <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> wow. See, and that's the other thing. Jews comprise one quarter of 1% of all the people on earth. One, quor one quarter of 1%, 13 million people. Okay, they're one quarter of 1% of the population of the earth. 20% of all the uh, Nobel Prize winners. I was listening to somebody and he went through all the names, you know, from Albert Einstein to Levi Strauss to uh, Adam Sandler to, you know, it doesn't, doesn't matter what you think. It's just, just he went through uh, Ruth Westheimer, you know, what, what, it doesn't matter what you think. He went through all of these people that were Jewish. Well, it's amazing. And he went through uh, all of the discoveries that, you know, it's like, is there anybody here that doesn't have genes? Okay, you don't. That doesn't have genes on? You, you don't need the genes. Yeah. Levi Strauss, dude. Okay. Um, you, you go through, how, okay, here's the story. Guy walks into his accountant's office and he says, you know, it's Jewish accountant. And he says, you, you have Jews and Christians as customers, right? He goes, yeah. And he says, which ones uh, are the wealthiest? And he laughs. He says, well, the Jews. Ten to one. Jews always have more money than Christians. And the guy says, well, why? And so he picks up a Bible. And he says, Christians only read the back of the book. All the financial information is in the front of the book. I mean, it's, it's good. It's true. <laughs> and that would explain why Jews control something like 30% of all the wealth on earth. One quarter of 1% of the population are Jewish and control like 30%. Yeah, every, you know, and I'm not saying they're good. Bertie Madoff is Jewish. You know, the Rothschilds are Jewish. You know, it's, it doesn't matter. It's, it's just that they're Jewish. They know how to deal with this stuff. Okay, so look, well, that's what, we need to do is we need to seek God and we need to rededicate our temple and we need to understand that there is value in it even if it results in our eventual destruction or our immediate destruction big deal do you want to live like that he didn't so anyway Hanukkah like you've never heard it before